Hello and welcome to the Securities Compliance Podcast presented by the National Society of Compliance Professionals, where it is our mission to help you put compliance in context. I'm your host, Patrick Hayes, partner at the Calfee Law Firm, and on today's show, we do a deep dive on the 2023 report on Finner's Examination and Risk Monitoring Program and the role of the Membership Application Program as part of Finner's larger governance structure. In our headline section, we review recent testimony from Chair Gensler before the House Financial Services Committee and a new risk alert from the SEC Division of Examinations identifying compliance deficiencies of newly registered investment Advisors. And finally, we'll wrap up today's show with another installment of What's On My Mind, where we honor Mr. Irrelevant from last year's NFL draft and the insights it can tell us about the role of compliance inside our respective firms. Diving into the headlines portion of the show, in testimony before the House Financial Services Committee, SEC Chair Gary Gensler highlighted regulatory initiatives on equity markets and private funds, artificial intelligence and predictive data analytics, crypto and climate change disclosure. Chair Gensler highlighted certain regulatory action taken by the SEC intended to enhance, quote, efficiency, integrity, and resiliency in the securities markets. On equity markets and private funds, Mr. Gensler said that it was appropriate to update rules governing the equity markets given the $40 trillion American households have invested. He highlighted the SEC proposals amending best execution standards to cover all sectors of the securities market, amending regulation NMS Rule 605 regarding order execution quality. He talked about harmonizing the minimum price increment for quoting and transacting stocks and increasing competition for individual investors' marketable orders. Chair Gensler then further added that the SEC proposed amendments to private fund advisor requirements concerning investor reporting on fees, expenses, and performance. As it relates to artificial intelligence and predictive data analytics, Chair Gensler cautioned that while predictive data analytics can benefit investors through market access, efficiency, and increased returns, advisors can also use the analytics for their own benefit. Chair Gensler said that the SEC staff is considering rule proposals on how to address these potential conflicts. On the crypto assets front, because crypto intermediaries often act simultaneously as an exchange, broker-dealer, and or clearing agency, Chair Gensler warned of the inherent conflict of intermediaries commingling various functions within the securities marketplace. He reaffirmed that the vast majority of crypto tokens, in his opinion, are securities and that intermediaries, whether they are centralized or decentralized, should be subject to securities laws. Finally, he argued that crypto investors should be able to benefit from securities compliance. On the climate risk disclosure front, Chair Gensler highlighted that the SEC proposed amendments to implement consistent and comparable climate risk disclosures by public companies including the arguments that investors who manage tens of trillions of dollars, quote, in assets rely on climate disclosures when making investments when making investment decisions. Finally, Mr. Gensler underscored that the SEC's work to bolster market resiliency through several proposals concerning clearinghouse governance, risk management, use of service providers, and wind-down plans is of extreme importance and should be continued to be looked at and focused on by the Commission. In response to some of Chair Gensler's remarks to the House Financial Services Committee, Republican members of the committee expressed vehement opposition to Chair Gensler's regulatory agenda, characterizing many of these efforts as, quote, radical regulatory agenda. In a joint letter criticizing Chair Gensler's approach to digital assets, Many legislators complained that Chair Gensler's imposition of a regulatory framework on market participants is, quote, neither compatible with underlying technology nor applicable if a firm's activities do not involve securities. In addition, critics said that the SEC's push for firms involved in digital assets to register with the agency is a, quote, willful misrepresentation of the SEC's non-existent registration process. Finally, House Financial Services Subcommittee on Capital Markets Chair Ann Wagner, House Financial Services Subcommittee on Oversight and Investigation Chair Bill Hazenga, and House Financial Services Committee Chair Patrick McHenry all expressed opposition to the SEC's agenda, raising concern over the potential impact and undue barriers of the large number of SEC rulemaking proposals out there 
the radical regulatory agenda pursued by Chair Gensler, which the legislature said the SEC has no power to act on unless and until Congress authorizes it, failure to encourage capital formation, and criticizing the recent SEC proposals, which do not directly promote capital formation and create costly regulatory disclosure requirements. Moving to our next headline, in a new risk alert, the SEC Division of Examinations highlighted compliance deficiencies of newly registered investment advisors. The division examined newly registered advisors for, among other things, conflicts of interest and adequacy of disclosures. In their risk alert, the division observed the following deficiencies. First, compliance policies and procedures that failed to address risks applicable to the firm, such as portfolio management and fee billing, a lack of procedures for enforcing compliance policies that were not followed by firm staff because either the employees were, one, unaware of the policies or procedures, or two, they were not consistent with their firm's business operations. The division also observed disclosure and document filings that omitted required information or were inaccurate regarding advisors' fees and compensation, business and operations, and services offered to clients, such as advisors' investment strategy, aggregate trading, and account review. And finally, the Division of Examinations observed additional deficiencies in areas like marketing materials that contained false or misleading information regarding advisory personnel professional experience, third-party rankings, and performance. As we move into the interview section of today's show, we're going to be taking a look at the 2023 report on FINRA's examination and risk monitoring program and doing a little bit of background on some other fantastic divisions over at FINRA itself. The 2023 report on FINRA's examination and risk monitoring program provides member firms with insight into findings from the recent oversight activities of FINRA's member supervision, market regulation, and enforcement programs, collectively the regulatory operations programs. The report typically reflects FINRA's commitment to providing greater transparency to member firms and the public about our regulatory activities as well as the increasing, the increasing integration among regulatory operations programs. FINRA hopes that the integrated approach will also increase the report's utility for its member firms as an information source that they can use to help strengthen their compliance programs. And as a result, oftentimes the report will address materially broader range of topics than in prior years um, to, again, hopefully give firms ideas and considerations that they should be looking at to help enhance their firm's own compliance programs. With us today to dig into the 2023 report and provide some fantastic insight to a number of the different programs happening over at FINRA, we have with us Ed Wegener and Lisa Robinson, both from Oyster Consulting. Ed is the Head of Governance, Risk, and Compliance with Oyster Consulting. Prior to joining Oyster, Ed was with FINRA for 22 years. Most recently there, he was the Midwest Regional Director for the Exam and Risk Monitoring Programs. Lisa Robinson is currently Managing Director at Oyster Consulting. Prior to joining Oyster, Lisa spent over 25 years at FINRA. Got a couple legs up on you there, Ed. <laughs> served as the Senior Director of the Membership Application Program Group for over seven years. Lisa was also an Associate Director in FINRA's Examination Program. Ed, Lisa, welcome to the show. Great to have you with us today. Well, it's great to be here, Patrick. Great to be here. Thank you. So as we get started today, and we're going to kind of be focusing the initial part of our conversation, certainly on the uh, risk examination monitoring program and the FINRA report from the first quarter of this year. But then as we get deeper into some of the topics in conversation, I think it'll kind of naturally segue into getting to learn a little bit more about FINRA itself and some of the other uh, groups inside of FINRA and how and what their impact is on the industry. But I guess to kind of kick things off generally in looking at the report itself, one of the new kind of title sections of the report included something called financial crimes. And, you know, just knowing, you know, FINRA will actually, you know, in its reporting specifically call out where they have a new section. Certainly they did that again here. Maybe, Ed, why don't we start with you? you the, the title for this section was called financial crimes, something new. Is there anything in particular to read from that, or does that help uh, shed light on maybe some of uh, some areas of continued focus uh, for FINRA and the examination program? It's it's so funny that that you picked up on that, because that's one of the things that I first picked up when I 
started reviewing the report first because it's the first section that they have, but also that they, they call this out. And it, it's interesting because all of the items within this category are, are things that FINRA has identified as priorities in the past. But I think the interesting thing, as you point out, is that they're calling this section out under financial crime. And I think that what you can take away from this, and one of the reasons that they've done this, is because of the, the recent restructuring efforts that FINRA has been engaged in over the last couple of years. And not only have they restructured the program to move away from uh, geographical-based or regional-based programs and be more focused on business-specific or business-line um, uh, segmentations, but they've also created uh, centralized groups to pull out certain areas that used to be done in the district offices and, and centralize those under uh, centralized management so that they can pay particular attention. And, and one area that they've done this in is in financial crime. So they've created a unit that's specifically uh, geared towards addressing financial crime. So. Um, the areas that they've identified are, are some of the areas that are in that group, including cybersecurity, AML, certain parts of, uh, of the trading issues that they see. And so uh, one of the things that I would take away from that is uh, not only are these areas that FINRA sees as priorities, but that they're paying particular attention to these areas so much so that they dedicated specific staff and management to focus on these particular areas. So while these areas generally are, are under financial crimes. The review of these are things that they would traditionally review and they have set up to, to address. So things like AML, you know, this is a group that's primarily going to be responsible for reviewing your AML programs. They have a group that's set up to look at cybersecurity and um, they have specific groups to look at um, a trading, especially if that trading looks like it might be part of some type of manipulative scheme. Yeah. No, that's that's super helpful feedback and kind of good to know for those that may not be plugged into or as familiar with the fact that, you know, again, I'm, a lot of these topics may not necessarily be new themselves, but the fact that they're being organized this way is certainly going to be indicative of some of the additional resources, right, that FINRA may be applying to help take a look at those. And and additional resources typically mean, you know, ad additional focus and certainly something that uh, folks should be paying attention to. So let's dig into a couple of those topic areas that you just touched on, Ed, if I could stay with you then, because you, you mentioned cyber, right? And that's obviously one of the things that Look, it, it impacts us all every day. I feel like there's this is one of those just areas that there could be a common thread across a multitude of different compliance related topics on uh, as it relates to cyber and I'm sure concerns from many of our FINRA member firms that are listening to this podcast. What, what stood out to you, right, as you dug into the specific section on cyber and some of the different related considerations that uh, firms should be paying attention to into this area. Where where do you see the FINRA staff focusing in on during during their examinations here? Sure. So so cybersecurity over the past several years has continued to be a focus for FINRA just because of the <clears throat> the risks and concerns that they have over customer information, uh, firm confidential information, and FINRA has had for the last several years. Um, identified and hired subject matter experts with cybersecurity backgrounds to be part of their examination program. And now that group has been absorbed um, into this broader financial crimes group. And um, some of the things that they focus on are, are the traditional things that they've identified as priorities over the last couple of years, but a couple of things sort of caught my eye. Um, the first is access management. Uh, there's a significant focus on firms' controls over access to sensitive information. So uh, they're going to be reviewing policies, procedures, and controls with respect to how firms manage and control access to sensitive information. So that's both the initial determination of who has access to what, uh, but then also making sure that there's periodic regular reviews with respect to who has access to what to make sure that it continues to be current and appropriate. And then importantly is procedures around terminating access when individuals either leave 
or get new roles where they require different access levels. So that's one of the areas that I see them really focusing in as they as they bring in these subject matter experts to, to focus in on programs. So the, I think these reviews are gonna be um, much more detailed than they may have been in the past. Another area that they highlight, and I know is an area of concern for, for them is uh, branch implementation of, of, of cybersecurity policies and procedures. They mentioned in the report, and I've heard them talk about this, that they've seen really good cybersecurity policies and procedures fall apart when they're not effectively implemented at the branch location. So I would anticipate that they're gonna be not only assessing the firm's overall cybersecurity program, but to make sure that the, the cybersecurity policies and procedures are implemented effectively at the branches, and that when they conduct branch inspections that they'll be looking at how those branch locations are implementing the firm's policy around uh, security, around access, passwords, things like that. Another area that I, I saw that that was interesting, and, and they've been putting out a, a, a lot of alerts with respect to this, and that's in Costco websites. Uh, they highlight that they've seen an uptick in websites that are purported to be uh, uh, FINRA member firm websites when really they're not likely being used in some sort of fraudulent scheme. Um, so one of the things that's important for firms to, to do is to periodically go out and do uh, Google searches, public record searches on the internet to see if the firm's name is being used on a website that might not be appropriate. And whether, if a firm identifies a situation where there is an imposter site, whether it's through those searches or, or they find out through some other means, that you report that to FINRA right away and also um, appropriate to get law enforcement involved because um, they've seen fraud fraud schemes that were uh, perpetrated through the use of these imposter websites. So from a cybersecurity standpoint, those are some of the things that, that I really took away from that portion of the report. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. And I think that's kind of an important point. It's interesting, you know, when I think about designing compliance testing and stuff for the member firms that we help, you know, counsel on that front, I would say at the top, because you're often so focused internally, right, as you're designing those compliance testing programs, it may not be top of mind that you might think, I should really be doing some testing and, and doing a little bit of, you know, Google searching or whatever else regarding the firm's name or what other places it may be being used inappropriately, right, without necessarily the proper authorization. But it sounds like, again, that's something that FINRA is asking firms to do and, and could uh, be, be helpful there as far as thinking about some of the, th uh, the particular items you may want to build into your compliance program. You know, one of the things about cybersecurity is not only, you know, does it have a regulatory component, you need to make sure you have controls in place to have a, a good um, compliant uh, program, but also there's a tremendous amount of reputational damage that can happen if there's some sort of breach or if you're involved in some sort of, um, or the victim of some um, type of imposter website or something like that. So it, it's good both from a regulatory standpoint, but also from a um, uh, re reputational risk control standpoint. Yeah. You know, there, there's been a, a slew of different kind of SEC rule proposals in the area of cyber, too, including some that impact broker dealer firms. Obviously, look, there's a lot of runway left to figure out on those rule proposals and what the potential impact could be for broker dealer custodians, specifically in the area of cyber. You know, any tips or best practices that you would offer right now for firms, or more of a wait and see what happens, and then be be flexible and nimble and ready to kind of adjust. Well, I think being flexible, nimble, and ready is an important thing to to do. But in the meantime, you know, one of the challenges that I remember we had at FINRA when we would go out and review for this, um, and I'm sure the SEC has similar issues, and probably hence the uh, the rule proposals, is there really was no specific rule that said these are the things that you need to do to guard against cybersecurity. And so we would look to things like Reg SP, Reg SID, and things like that to see, you know, where can we sort of um, identify portions of rules that we can anchor our views in. Um, so it, it's a bit of a challenge. And I think, um, you know, one of the things, so as, as the rule proposals uh, continue to move down their path, one of the things that I would recommend to firms is to not wait for the rule, is to make sure that you have good, strong, 
cybersecurity policies, procedures, and practices in place. Uh, there's a lot of resources that you can use because uh, this is an issue that doesn't just affect financial services firm. It, it affects pretty much everyone out there. And so one of the places that I would look, FINRA's got a terrific uh, cybersecurity page on their website. They have a number of uh, tools that are available, including a small firm template that um, would be informative, not just to small firms. Uh, medium and large size firms can look at that as well, just to kind of get a sense of some of the practices that they're looking at. Uh, but FINRA also issued a number of reports on cybersecurity practices that highlighted the risks that they were identifying, highlighting what they were seeing firms doing. And, and effective practices as well. So I would take a look at, at those resources and start designing your programs now. Um, I, they may need to be tweaked as these rule proposals get finalized, but you know, there's the, the cyber criminals aren't waiting for rules to get written. And so it's important to make sure that you, you've got controls over those things. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point. And I think that is great advice. You know, don't, don't wait, you know, act now. And um, I think it's super important for firms to make sure that they've got good, in, you know, good internal controls and are prepared, even if the rule proposals might ultimately uh, require some kind of adjustment or shift from the registrant's perspective. I, I would also add and kind of echo your sentiments. I, I have found there to be some really great resources out on FINRA's website. And I also agree that generally speaking, the small firm guides that both FINRA and the SEC have, you know, and not to be outdone, the CFTC does a great job with a lot of their uh, materials on their site uh, as well. I've you know, taken advantage of those and even watched some of the videos around the exemption filings and stuff like that. But the FINRA and the SEC guides for small firms can be really, really helpful and are often chock full of a lot of really great content. So that's a good a good suggestion there. Let, let's turn, you mentioned also earlier, you know, AML and kind of trading related practices. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, on the AML front, this is another area where obviously firms need to have strong internal controls. Where do you see the FINRA staff focusing in on in the AML space? And, and would you have, I guess, any uh, particular guidance for firms looking to enhance their compliance testing in this area? Yeah, so I mean, this is another area that's been the high priority for FINRA and other regulators for a number of years. So, in, in looking through this year's report, you know, they do cover a lot of the traditional requirements like um, uh, verifying customer uh, identities, uh, doing customer due diligence, training, testing, making sure that your testing is independent. There were a couple of things that I would note, though, um, from this year's report. One is the, the highlight of compliance with Reg SID and identity theft. So I think that that's going to be an area as part of their AML program that they're going to be focusing on. So an area that you want to take a look at your procedures to make sure that you've got sufficient procedures for um, Reg SID. And another area that's traditionally been a, a big focus for those, but and, and but but can be tricky is the, the monitoring for suspicious activities. Firms have largely started to automate that process and use alerting systems to help them review for suspicious activities, which is extremely important. Uh, but if you're using automated surveillance systems and alerting systems, one of the things that they talk about is making sure that you're testing the data feeds and testing the thresholds that you're using with those surveillance systems to make sure that, that they're tested and that they're sound. And then as red flags are identified, that they're um, appropriately acted upon, not only that they're timely acted upon, but making sure that the reviews and assessments into those red flags and alerts is, is substantive and sufficient, and that there's good documentation about what was reviewed, what was done with respect to it. I, I remember when we were doing exams, when I was with FINRA, and you would look and you'd see a number of alerts, and you would just see sort of boilerplate um, language uh, addressing the alerts. You know, they're going to want to see something substantive, not only addressing the uh, inquiries that were done when the alerts flagged, but then also the conclusions that were drawn and uh, the basis for those conclusions. So I would make sure that you ensure and test to make sure that you're, that, that those comments are, are sufficient. Another thing that they identified as an effective practice um, is the importance of doing AML risk assessments. And they, they have this under effective practices. And I, I, I think that's primarily because the rule doesn't specifically call out that you need to do risk assessments for AML. But I've heard FINRA say that 
It's their expectation that firms do an assessment of their business and assess the AML risks associated with their business so that they can tailor their procedures accordingly. Um, so I said that the, the expectation, the rule is that firms have a risk-based AML program, and in order to have a risk-based program, you need to understand what those risks are. So as part of that, I think their expectation is that firms do um, some type of risk assessment. So formalized risk assessments for AML, I think is an important part of an effective AML. Yeah, no, that that's great. Great insight. It kind of reminds me of you know where where you have this thing that's uh, not necessarily required, but certainly expected. That that takes me back to my old two a days during football, <laughs> where you know not not necessarily required, but expected, especially if you wanted to see the playing field. Let, let's do one more. I know you mentioned trading, and then I'd love to dig in on some operations issues with with you, Lisa. Um, but on the trading front, manipulative trading is another area that, you know, was highlighted as in kind of called out specifically by FINRA as being a little bit new here. Why, why do you think FINRA called that out? And, and what, what do you think it tells us about the risk monitoring and examination program? Yeah, you know, I, I think the newness is, you know, the fact that, again, this is under the financial crime section. Uh, but FINRA has traditionally been focused on what they've seen as, as manipulative trading activity. It used to primarily fall under their market reg section in their report, but they continue to be focused on things such as spoofing, layering, pump and dump schemes um, with thinly traded and low price securities. So those are areas that I think they're going to continue to be focusing on for firms that 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 execute equity transactions, they're going to be looking for potential, or they're going to be looking at firms, systems for monitoring and surveilling to assess whether there is any potential spoofing, layering, uh, pump and dump schemes, those types of activities. So they're going to want to look at your, your surveillance system for uh, testing that. And with the information that they're going to have um, through the CAC data, I would anticipate um, greater surveillance on their part of market activity and um, uh, an increased number of inquiries, and not just an increased number, but more specific inquiries because of the information that they're getting through CAT. So I'd expect to see greater scrutiny in this area um, as a result. Yeah. Well, I, I certainly know another area where we've had a lot greater scrutiny and something that firms have been taking note of over the past uh, couple years. Certainly, over the, I'll, I'll call it the last seven or eight months since the end of Q3 2022 is the, um, the, the, the subject matter of off-channel communications. And there was obviously the string of very large enforcement actions that came out uh, near the end of, of September there in 2022. And since then, you've seen, look, a lot of different uh, members of the staff speak about this topic and continue to focus on or uh, to, to continue to indicate that it is a focus area. And so, you know, with regard to a lot of those headlines, Lisa, if I could turn to you, certainly you have an enforcement or a, a string of enforcement actions like that. You're obviously going to get the attention of the industry today, knowing that firms are probably have probably certainly seen some of those headlines. I'm less interested in the, you know, the enforcement actions, but I'm, I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on, you know, what are you seeing successful firms do to help mitigate the risk uh, with regard to off-channel business communications and and then the other kind of thoughts or commentary about you know the the different uh, you know approaches that might be out there yeah sure Patrick and and definitely like you said this is all over the news big headlines I think a couple billion dollars in fines crazy um, so this is when employees are using unapproved or inadequately protected devices like your, your cell phone or messaging applications for business-related communications. A lot of times people are using text, you know, they're just texting or instant messaging, WhatsApp, social media, all that stuff, right? Every day there's a new app that people are, you know, sometimes right. business-related exactly. communications, right? So. What we find for firms that has been successful is having like initial and annual training for the employees of the firm, going over what is approved, uh, what isn't approved by the firm. I'm having like an annual questionnaire that goes over that list, um, making training mandatory 
and letting them know that there are consequences when they go ahead and use these unapproved um, methods for business-related communication. Um, not just telling, importantly, you got to tell them about it, but what are the consequences if you do this? Because there are certainly consequences for the firm. No, that's great. And, and I think really great advice. I absolutely agree that training and education is one of the, the absolute best ways that you can demonstrate to the FINRA staff or to even the SEC staff, to any regulator, that you're really taking the topic seriously and continuing to kind of educate your, um, your employees on it. I know one thing that we've also found is, um, cause this is like you said, Lisa, this is just one of those areas that so many firms are really struggling with because oftentimes many of the technologies that are out there to help with archiving those business records haven't kept pace, right? You talked about, there's like a new app every day, right? I mean, and that, that can be really challenging. And so I don't know, you know, what additional thoughts or, or guidance you might have for firms that are looking to try to navigate that as well. Yeah, there's also different like lexicon searches you could use with your email reviews, right? You could plug in words like text me or GM me or when you're reviewing the emails, if there's an email, look at the email chain and if there are email addresses like for a rep that you haven't seen before or if a customer complaint references hey, rep, I tried to reach you at this AOL email you gave me, <laughs> you know, things like that. I definitely monitor and follow up on just to help the overall supervision for that. You know, you know, Patrick, one of the things, too, that I mean, you bring up a good point that, you know, it, it's challenging when the, the, the technology and the means by which you communicate keep changing. And, you know, one of the hard parts is just knowing what the latest thing people are using. Um, and so one of the things we've we've talked to clients about is, you know, having focus groups and talking to people about what's being used out there. Talk to your kids, you know, because they're the ones, if something's going to be used, they're the first ones to probably use it. Right. And then talk to your vendors and say, hey, do you have a solution for this? Because the more you try to prohibit things, and if you can't surveil it and you can't maintain it, you need to prohibit it. But you know, the, the best first start would be to try to see if you can do it in a compliant way, especially if it's a way that, there's a demand from your advisors and from your clients to use that that communication channel because if you try just to prohibit it and it's something people want to use, that's where you run into people using things um, sort of off the grid. And right. uh, so I, I think it's just the, the the awareness I think is the the, the you know an important part of that. It's a great point. It's it's a really great point, and it actually reminds me. I mean, there's a couple of different things that you know I think firms can look to do and agreed, Lisa, great comments or thoughts about additional testing that you can do on that front. You can do additional training on that front and, you know, use certifications to your advantage too, where have people attest that not only are they abiding by the firm's policies and procedures annually, but build in there a specific question that says, have you used any other modes of communication by which to communicate with clients that aren't currently being archived by a firm technology or other systems? Again, it's not perfect. You still can't always prevent it from happening, but at least you can continue to show that you're focused on it and, and focused on trying to mitigate um, any potential issues that are out there. And then I guess the, the last thing I'll, I'll mention on it which is that, you know, another thing I've seen some firms start to do, which is, you know, where, because they're, they're, as you might expect, they're getting such significant pushback from some of the reps that are out there. And they're saying, well, it's not my fault. I'm not the one that's doing it. It's my clients that are doing it. And how do I prevent them from texting me? And look, certainly there's some education or conversation that might need to go on between advisors and their clients. But I guess the other option that I've seen a few firms start to go down the path of saying is, Okay, well, look, if this is an integral part of your business, then you can choose to do it, but just know that then you are going to have to have all of your text archived, right? And there's kind of like almost like an opt-in. So firms either say, look, if you don't want to have your cell phone and all your text messages archived, then you can't use it. But if you are going to use it, then you need to make sure that that phone is a business phone and that those messages are being archived. And that hybrid approach, again, not uh, universally loved, <laughs> <laughs> or accepted by folks, but at least it does help keep firms, I think, on the right side of the fence, generally speaking. One of the other areas, you know, that I 
would also say continues to generate a lot of attention. And that, you know, again, I think many folks it certainly has been a concern for many years, not anything new, but one that I think needs continual refreshing, because I think that the sophistication of unfortunately, some of the bad actors in this space continues to improve. And so as a compliance function and as just a, a, a firm general in its operations, firms need to get better is in the area of trusted contacts and trying to protect uh, senior and vulnerable investors. And so one of the questions I've, another question I've got for you, Lisa, um, as it relates to kind of a firm's operations is, you know, the industry is continuing to try to do this and is making sure that this is a priority to protect senior and vulnerable investors. What are some key questions that you think you could expect from FINRA staff that might be conducting an examination in this space? Yeah, and we touched upon it earlier, right? It's training and education of employees. Are they providing training to their employees upon, you know, the trusted contact person, the escalation process, if they ever need to put a temporary hold, things like that, FINRA um, is going to want to know if you're doing. One of the first things FINRA is always going to ask for are the WSPs relating to this, right? So is it an adequate um, system that you have in place? Uh, to make sure that they're following the rules. Just obtaining the, the TCP is one step that, believe it or not, in the, in the findings for the, the 2023 report, some firms aren't even taking that reasonable step to obtain the TCP. So, so I think that's really important. That's going to be one of the first things FINRA asks for. Yeah, no, that's that's great. And again, you would think at this point, hopefully firms would have received the message that this is important and that you need to make sure you do this as part of your onboarding. Sorry, Lisa, do you have what note? Yeah, no, and I, I think FINRA is going to ask for those written disclosures, right, to make sure that if they do get the, the TCP, are they providing the right disclosure uh, to the customer? Okay, under what circumstances will you use this TCP? And I think overall firms wanna wanna do this. Like you said, everyone everyone cares about their 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 grandma and, and everyone else and they wanna make sure, you know, God forbid someone tries to do something to their account that they'll have someone else to reach out to to say, Hey, wait a minute, don't do that. So just more education I think will go a long way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I you know, completely agree with that. And we, we actually had Richard Such come on uh, from the New Jersey Division of Enforcement and, and a, a really distinct member of NASA and its uh, committee that, that focuses on a lot of these issues. And he talked a lot about that. And and again, you know, ho hopefully firms continue to get better. And I uh, loved your comment at the top about really doing training and education, right? To, to look out, to be on the lookout for those kinds of signs when you see some of that activity that might starting to, to be occurring uh, with, with the clients. And then again, having that trusted contact in place so that you can try to help eliminate or mitigate <laughs> any potential harm from occurring is so, so critical. Uh, you know, another big area, and maybe Ed, I'll come back to you as we switch gears a little bit here, but in looking at kind of, you know, sales and communications, right? Uh, an, an old stalwart, uh, I'm sure, on, on as far as, you know, topic areas go uh, and things for FINRA to continue to explore and dig into on the examination front. I think in particular, though, I'd like to focus some of our uh, conversation today or a couple of the questions more on some specific aspects of the sales and communications process. And at the start, I think, you know, regulation best interest, Reg BI, we, we finally have started to see a trickle in of some of these enforcement actions, right, stemming from the initial rule release and then the, the, some of the fallout. And I'm sure, you know, over the past few years now, those examinations have been ongoing. And so now you're starting to see some of these cases come through and take shape. What, what are you hearing from, from member firms being looked at regarding Reg BI and their continuing obligations to kind of meet the, you know, the, 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 the standard of care articulated under Reg BI and its related components? Sure. Yeah. So in, in looking at the types of cases that have been coming out from enforcement recently, um, with respect to Reg BI, I mean, it's it's interesting that things are starting to come out from enforcement with regard to Reg BI. But um, the types of cases that they're bringing so far are things that I, 
I would have expected that they would bring anyways under the suitability requirements. So what I would take away from that, you know, from an enforcement perspective is that FINRA is using Reg BI now not to bring new types of cases, but they're using Reg BI as a new tool to address some traditional concerns. And an example of that is how they've used Reg BI to bring excessive trading cases. Um, it's been an area that FINRA has been focused on, you know, high turnover, churning type cases. But in the past, they used to have to show de facto control under the suitability requirement. Now with Reg BI, they don't have to show that anymore. And as a result, I think they're going to go after cases that they otherwise may have had some challenges of bringing. So I would anticipate to see more cases coming out um, regarding de facto control. But other areas that they've been looking to bring cases you know, from a suitability standpoint, I think you're going to start to see those coming out now as Reg BI cases. And so it'll be interesting to read those um, cases, whether it's an AWC or a hearing panel decision, just to see how they're applying Reg BI in these particular types of cases, just to see if there's any nuanced differences. But I think the traditional types of cases that they're bringing are, are similar. Not yet at the enforcement stage, but something they're focusing on as more on as part of their examination program is, is the care obligation. Um, and specifically in, in this report and, and other things that I've seen, um, focusing on assessing firms' processes and procedures around reasonably available alternative assessments and account type recommendations. And um, so those are two areas that I would take a look at what um, FINRA said in its report, but also look to other guidance. And this is one of the differences between Reg BI and um, suitability is that Reg BI is an SEC rule. So FINRA is not going to interpret that on their own. They're going to look to the SEC for their guidance. And the SEC recently has put out a lot of what I think is really helpful information in Reg BI. They've come out with a, a couple of bulletins that touch on the care obligation and account type recommendations. They put out a um, a, an alert from the examination program, as well as both FINRA and the SEC have put out um, findings in their uh, priorities reports for this year. So I think all of those are, are very informative. I would really look at the reasonably available alternative area, because I think that's an area that firms have been struggling a little bit with. And so these pieces of guidance really provide some, shed some light on what the regulators are looking for in this space. But one thing I would make sure is that you have really good policies and procedures around how the individuals in the field, the advisors, are making recommendations and considering alternatives, um, that you're training them on how to do the assessment between comparable products, that you have a way of identifying or how the advisors in the field can identify what are comparable products when they're doing those assessments. And then uh, making sure that they have the right information that they need in order to be able to do the assessments. Like you should be looking at things like cost, risk, performance. And if they don't have that information for all the alternatives that they're looking for, you know, it's, it's going to be tough to be able to demonstrate that you're complying with that portion of the rule. One question that comes up oftentimes when you're talking about this is the documentation aspect. And the SEC has said, you know, we don't expect that you're going to document, you know, the, the considerations on every recommendation that you're um, you're making, but we expect that you do it in some, you know, and so that's a lot of great guidance there, right? <laughs> um, and so you got to look, and they give some examples like complex products and, you know, risky products, costly products, you know, the types of things that you should be considering. What I would tell firms to do is to make sure that you're calling out in your procedures when you are requiring your reps to provide documentation. What are the circumstances? What are the factors that they need to be considering when determining whether to have documentation? And look to the SEC's guidance around, around those factors, things like complexity of the product, liquidity of the product, costs of the products, those types of things, and making sure that it's clear when documentation should be kept and that you're communicating and training your reps about when they should be documenting that and, and when it's okay not to. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, and then you do that training and then, you know, after the fact, maybe even throw in, you know, uh, additional testing to make sure it was consistently applied, you know, and I think that's another expectation is they're going to, it's not just set it and forget it. They're going to want you to do monitoring to, especially early on to make sure that, you know, this is taking and that, you know, you're getting some consistency. What you don't want to have is, you know, some people doing it well, some people doing it not so well, and you're not knowing the difference. 
Yeah, no, that's a great point and, and really great, great insights, too, because I think it's important to stress that it, it's easy when you see a couple of the headlines come out about an enforcement action. And again, Reg BI is listed. I think the initial reaction might be, oh, this is a, a case about an enforcement case about Reg BI. In reality, it's like, well, that case probably would have been brought previously, right? It was kind of low-hanging fruit. It was just, it happens to be being brought under Reg BI now, but it's really something that you know, has been something that, that traditionally has been looked at as violative. And so the FINRA was going to examine it that way. I think you know, to your point, and I think it's a great one, is for firms to really be keeping a close eye on some of these other uh, um, investigations and enforcement actions that may be coming here soon, you know, sooner down the uh, a little bit down the road that are going to be focused more on the component parts, including the duty of care, which you mentioned, and some of these other aspects of that, that I think are just really, really important for firms to focus on. So thank you. Thanks for providing that. Lisa, if I could turn to you, but stay in the same kind of sales and communications thing. One of the things I think is really interesting that firms are also continuing to have to navigate. We talked about, you know, the uh, with advancing technologies, <laughs> some of the compliance hurdles that often uh, we have to try to navigate. Uh, we talked about it earlier in the sense of record keeping and archiving, but I think communications with the public is another one. And I, I think you see that in a lot of these app-based communications have having really good policies in place with regard to communications with the public is nothing new, but firms having are continuing to have to adapt to those changing technologies. And I guess another question for you might be how, how do you see firms that are using mobile apps uh, having to enhance their policies and procedures there? And I guess maybe what are, again, some best practices that you've seen from successful firms in, in that specific area? Yeah, that's really good and so important because it seems every broker dealer wants to have a mobile app now. Um, even when I was over at Fenrite, it was just constant. Everyone, everyone wants a mobile app, but there's a lot that goes into it, right? And you want to make sure that the information that you're providing to the, the customers and investors on these mobile apps First up, of course, is accurate, right? You want to make sure that you're giving the right balances and the right performance numbers um, and that the information you're displaying complies with the communication rules. And that's for the successful firms. Those are the things that they're taking a, a look at, right? Before you put the data up for customers to view, is it accurate? Um, does it comply with the rules? Things like that. Um, there's so many, there's new features that are coming out all the time on these apps. So making sure that they're monitoring new communication channels and apps. And some of it goes to what we talked about before with the off-channel communications too, right? Providing that training and education, making sure the employees knows uh, what channels are permitted, what are prohibited, whether it's through an attestation questionnaire, things like that, um, supervising these communication channels. Um, even mobile apps have, some have video components, right? So you wanna make sure that you're monitoring those video components, having appropriate procedures and controls, whether it's a, a live streamed public appearance that people are having on these apps, um, which is, you know, every day it's something new, but making sure that you have appropriate procedures for that. Yeah. Live streaming stuff. <laughs> if there's any particular words strung together that might scare me as a chief compliance officer, I think live streaming, any kind of communications or marketing and advertising or other stuff definitely would give me some heart palpitations there, I think. So no, that's that's really great. And thank you for that that insight. I, I think there's a lot in the FINRA uh, report that I would highly encourage uh, all of our listeners to dig into. We, we've only just barely touched on some of the different subjects that are covered in that report. And there's a lot, as Ed mentioned earlier, just from a resourcing perspective, there's a lot of really great resources on the FINRA uh, website that relate to a lot of these topics and would highly encourage folks to um, to dig into those materials. But I got a couple final questions uh, for you both, Ed and, and Lisa. And maybe Lisa, I'll, I'll stick with you for this first one because I know you were involved in the membership application program. And I, I think 
you know, FINRA does, and again, you know, we even talked about it a little bit at the top with kind of some of the recent reconfiguration, the uh, divisions within FINRA and what that means and what their specific purview or responsibilities might look like. Um, and so I guess maybe Lisa, having been uh, with the MAP for a long time, you know, would love to just have you share with our, with all of our listeners, you know, what, what is the purpose of the membership application program? What are some of the things that are kind of part of its charge uh, at, at FINRA and how has this group and I guess it's, it's overall purview kind of evolved over time? Yeah, sure. So any entity that wants to become a broker dealer or any existing broker dealer that would like to make a material change to their firm's business has to file an application with the MAP group and obtain approval before they can begin their business. So there are membership rules. There are 14 standards in those rules, and the firm has to demonstrate that they meet each of the 14 standards before they gain approval, right? So um, it's, it's a process, I would say. By rule, it could take up to 180 days from you know, when when the application is filed and deemed substantially complete to when you get approval. What I always recommend, I recommended it when I was over with FINRA running the MAP group, and I recommend it now, is don't file until you're ready. Have everything ready before you file. It makes things much more efficient, um, and it makes for a faster process. Um, the firms, the, the department continues to evolve, right? When I started there probably 10 years ago, and it, it had just become centralized. So it used to be that each district office had its own group of examiners who would review applications as they came into that district. But at the time, they found that there wasn't a lot of consistency in that process, not as much transparency as the, the membership would like. So they centralized it to a dedicated group. And that, that's when I joined. It became a dedicated group. No matter where the firm's home office was, they all filed into this one centralized group. We then began to make the program more risk-based. So although there are 14 standards, you know, some firms just aren't as risky as others, right? Whether it's the business model, you know, the size, the scale, the scope of the firm's business, they're all different sizes and shapes, right? So we started to apply this risk-based approach and the firms with the lower risk, we would try to expedite so that they could go and get started with their business sooner. And I think that's worked really well. We got a lot of really good feedback from the industry on that approach. And again, things continue to evolve. So now, um, I would say about two years ago, the MAP group started going through another transformation. And this time, they're aligning the department to how the risk monitoring program is. So it's set up with firm groupings, and they're building specialization and expertise in the different business models. So if you're going to apply to become a clearing firm, let's say, well, once you go through your initial assessment, your application will go to a dedicated group within MAP that handles those types of firms. So they continue to evolve. And I think it's a good thing, like, like everything, you know, it's constantly evolving to try to become more efficient and effective. Mm-hmm. Ed, did you have something you wanted to add, add on? No, that? no, I, I think we're, we're extremely happy that, that Lisa's joined us because the insights that she has with regard to this process, how it's evolved, have been extremely valuable to us, clients, and you know, uh, membership overall. One of the things that, you know, we, we have a lot of clients going through continuing uh, membership applications, and, and, and the, the process is very similar to what you would do for a new member application. You're focusing on what the change is that caused you to have to go through the continuing membership application, but you still got to meet the 14 standards. You got to show you can meet the 14 standards. There's still a time frame that you have to, and, and the advice about being ready to file, being ready before you file and having all your ducks in a row is equally as important. And that's probably the biggest struggle we have with clients is and a lot of this comes from the business side more than it does from compliance, but it's get it filed, get it filed, get it filed. Well, if you file it and you're not ready, 
you're only going to have problems and the clock is ticking, right? And you don't want those problems to come up when the clock is ticking. Right. Totally. No, you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, you don't when 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 you hit go and then all of a sudden the lights come on and say they're at their brightest, you you want to be at your best, right? <laughs> Versus feel like you're you're you know fumbling all over the place to try to a- answer what otherwise would be uh, uh, some you know straightforward questions about the activity in question and what's happening that's that's causing the change. I do also appreciate uh, as you articulated there, Lisa, the the additional you know specialization right and that then allows for certain types of firms to experience kind of a fast track or something like an expe- an expedited review that can also be very very effective so you know that's that's super helpful information um thank you for that well you know you both over the last few years have transitioned from some pretty senior level roles you know inside finra and i guess one kind of final question that i had for you both and would be really interested in your perspective here is you know what what's one of the things that as you've moved uh, from being on the examiner regulator side uh, to the industry side what you know what have you learned and i guess what what are some of uh, the biggest takeaways you've had lisa why don't why don't we start with you sure thank you So again, it's only been, what, four months now, but some of the things I've learned already. So firms, they want to be compliant, right? And before I give any guidance or advice to a firm, even though I know it in my head, I want to get it in writing, right? So I go to FINRA.org, and we talked about this before, the fantastic resources that are on FINRA.org, and I start researching. Because although I know the answer, I like to, you know, before I share it with a client, I want it. I want it. You know, you're an attorney. You no. Know. So just having those resources available in writing from FINRA or the SEC or wherever it is, is really helpful and really important um, because I didn't realize when I was doing the work at FINRA, it's just, you just know, right? It's just, it's in my head. So, um, Firms don't have that, right? They didn't spend 25 years at FINRA or 22 years at FINRA. So they're relying on us to give them that advice. So that, that's that been a big takeaway for me is just all the information that's out there and getting the right information to the client because they want to do the right thing. And that's what we're here to help them with. So that's yeah. been a big thing. Yeah, that, that's great. Mr. Wegener. Yeah, and we talked about when Lisa came on, you know, we talked a lot about that transition and you know what to expect. And having gone through that recently, um, I shared my experience with Lisa. So it'll be interesting to see if she has the same experience as she goes through. But I think about it both from the lens of what didn't I know as a regulator that I wish I would have known about the industry side. And then now that I'm on, on the industry side, what are things that I think the industry should know about the regulators? You know, And so probably the thing that I... That was the biggest wake-up moment going to the industry. Is um, it was a lot more challenging than I anticipated. I figured, you know, we we've, we've been doing this for over twenty years. We know these rules. This should be a piece of cake. And what I underestimated, you know, I know the rules and the requirements, uh, but what I underestimated is just the challenges challenges firms have in implementing those new rules and the challenges that they have um, in getting adoption on the business side. You know, we talk about these Reg BI changes. It's one thing to change set of policies and procedures is another thing to get people to adopt those policies and procedures, especially if they're, they're onerous ones. And so I didn't really appreciate those challenges. Um, you know, on the industry side, now that you know, I'm talking to people and, and things that I know about you know, from when I was in FINRA, one thing I'd say is, just, I'm not sure people appreciate just, you know, Lisa talked about the risk-based programs and how things are moving to be more risk-based. Just the importance that these risk assessments that the regulators are doing, how that influences how they view the firms and what they do and their decision-making. And, you know, as they become more risk-based, um, the, those risk assessments that they're doing, they drive important decisions like the frequency of exams, the scope of exams. And, Regulators are trying to tailor their reviews to the unique business models and also understand the risks and then how firms are controlling those risks. And 
I've seen firms that were really good at this when I was at FINRA that, you know, in talking with their, their risk monitoring and, and letting them know about, you know, hey, these are this is our business model. This is what makes us unique. Here are the risks as we see them, and here are the controls, and we're a really well-controlled firm. And if, if the person who's doing those risk assessments understands the or feels that the firm is well-controlled, that's going to lead to those decisions about how frequently they come out. If they feel you're well-controlled, they're going to uh, less frequently, they're gonna, they're, you know, they might do more cursory reviews and deep dive reviews in areas where they feel that they're well controlled. So, you know, the one thing that I would just recommend firms is is to start building those relationships with the regulators and then educate them on the controls that you have in place because I think that does go a long way in sort of managing your, your regulatory risk. Really great advice from you, you both, and appreciate the perspective there. I agree, Ed, that I, I think, you know, I'm sure, you know, walking a, a mile in a, in another person's moccasins might might change, you know, again, just uh, how difficult or challenging some of the things that they may be trying to work through but on both sides of that equation, right? Uh, so that makes a, a lot of sense. So I, I, I kind of buried the lead here by saying that that was the final question because we never let anybody get off that e easy without doing something a little bit more fun here at the end of the episode. So I know certainly in the Hayes household and with the five, two and one year old at home, warmer weather is a an absolute necessity to start to get the kids outside of the house after going stir crazy being cooped up for months on end and so e even this past weekend when it was a little bit colder we put on our winter jackets and did just that but i guess uh question for you both you know as we are now in the in the middle of, of spring and moving towards more warmer weather what's what's one thing you're looking forward to here as uh, we start to enter uh into the summertime and and ed we'll go in reverse order this time we'll, we'll start with you oh it's a it's a great question well one of the things that i think both lisa and i are thankful that we won't be doing is we both went through uh the college search process with our children and they've both drawn to a conclusion so we are very grateful that that uh, piece is done. So I'm thankful that I won't be doing that anymore. Now I'm just figuring out how to pay for it. But you know, I, I, I love the summer. We've, we've got a place not far from here that we go to um, in the summer. Uh, there's a, a lake and, and you know, we do all the lake type things and stuff and just getting away, decompressing, you know, that's, that's the important thing. It's just getting away, spending time with family and uh, leaving work until they get back. Yeah, that's great. How, how about you, Lisa? Yeah, um, the same. So, I, like Ed, I have one one daughter going off to college, and in almost exactly a month, I have one daughter graduating from college. So, this it's all so bittersweet, and um, my older daughter is going to be living in Boston, which is not our home state, so helping her move and just watching the kids grow up and get on their own is what I'm going to be doing this summer. Yeah. Crying a lot, I think. When they <laughs> it's it's encouraging for me in as much as some of the economics of stuff that you just mentioned is, is equally terrifying. It is important for me at the completely other end of that spectrum where right now I feel like I'm on call 24-7 with the five and two and one-year-old. It's good to know that there is hope at the end of the tunnel that they, they can ultimately achieve a certain sense of independence. So very good to hear. Well, Lisa, Ed, uh, thank you both so, so much for uh, uh, being so generous with your time and sharing all of your insights and perspectives on not just the uh, risk monitoring examination program, but but also on the membership application program at FINRA. And re really, really appreciate it and, and definitely would love to have you both back on the show here at some point down the road. Would love to. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, Patrick. The final part of today's show features another segment of What's On My Mind. As a quick reminder for some of our new listeners, this segment represents a tip of the cap to former 60 Minutes reporter Andy Rooney will often include a brief editorial or nuanced take on a contemporary issue and highlight how it relates to the investment management industry and our securities compliance family. In today's What's On My Mind, and with the NFL draft happening this week, I'd like to talk about Mr. Irrelevant. And for those non-football fans out there, Mr. Irrelevant is not the name of some new terrible superhero villain, though I kind of like that. Perhaps 
his evil power is telling you completely obscure, unrelatable facts that suck the life right out of you. I'm sure we could all tell a tale or two about such villainy from a work Christmas party or potentially a little kiddo's friend's birthday party. Anyway, the, the actual Mr. Irrelevant represents the nickname given the player who was picked very last in the NFL draft. Pick number 262. And let's be fair, most folks probably aren't going to expect much potential out of Mr. Irrelevant. But in 2022, an overlooked Iowa State quarterback, Brock Purdy, was selected as pick number 262 by the San Francisco 49ers, despite what some scouting reports had said. So what did those scattering reports say? One report detailed in The Athletic says Purdy was a prospect with less than ideal size, six feet tall, 212 pounds, with small hands and unimpressive athleticism. Oh, nice. The report went on to say that he was, quote, not a very good athlete, limited arm, both in strength and throw repertoire. When Purdy had visited Alabama, Nick Saban said this to him, quote, you're below average tonight. Your arm strength is whatever. Your accuracy is average. <laughs> your, your arm strength is whatever might be the most wonderfully Nick Saban quote ever. So what were the strengths for Purdy? Well, the strengths for Purdy was that he was very experienced, that he manages the game well, that he makes the routine plays consistently, that he was creative as the play extends and can work through his progressions very well. Later in 2022, after injuries were suffered by the much-hyped first-round QB drafted in 2021 by the 49ers and their big splash free agent signing from several years prior, who actually led them to a Super Bowl in 2019, Mr. Irrelevant Brock Purdy finally got his shot. And guess what happened? He went 6-0 in the regular season, 2-1 in the playoffs, became the first QB taken in the seventh round to start in the divisional round, and helped lead his team to the NFC title game. Anything is possible. In our fictional drafts of employees at RIA and broker-dealer firms, how many folks do you think are picking the compliance officer first? I think it's safe to say that 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 is a very unlikely outcome. And yet, I imagine that there are many folks listening to this podcast right now that are considered invaluable members of their respective firms. And even more than that, I imagine that there are many chief compliance officers and other compliance professionals who aren't just leading their individual compliance teams, but are leading the entire firm and helping push their firm, their company to new heights. Compliance may often get overlooked as a throwaway, but successful teams and firms know that greatness and great value can come from anywhere, even from compliance and even from Mr. Irrelevant. And for those football fans out there, you are now on the clock. And that will do it for today's show. I'd like to thank our sponsors, Calfee and the National Society of Compliance Professionals, and extend a big thank you to our guests, Lisa Robinson and Ed Wegener, for coming on the show today to share their fantastic insights on the 2023 report of Fender's Examination and Risk Monitoring Program. Please join us again next time on the Securities Compliance Podcast, where we help you put compliance in context. Please check us out on LinkedIn. You can search for Compliance and Context Podcast or on Twitter using the handle at CompliancePod. You can like us and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Or go to ComplianceAndContextPodcast.com to listen and learn more. 